I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. You can find that in the Pew Bibles on page 45. Children, here are your questions for this evening. First, how did God's people, Israel, end up in the land of Egypt? Two, why was Pharaoh, king of Egypt, worried about the Israelites? Three, even though Pharaoh made them slaves, what kept happening to Israel? Four, how is life without Jesus like slavery? And five, who alone can deliver us from that kind of slavery? Well, as we begin our series in Exodus, I did actually begin last week, and I said that last week's sermon was something of a preface. Tonight is something more of a formal introduction. And so we'll be reading Exodus chapter 1, the first 14 verses. And this is the word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we do thank you for your word, and we know that while these texts are ancient, and we know that these are people a long time ago and far from our land, Lord, these Israelites are our people, and we thank you that you give us a record of the way that you guide your people and you keep your people, and you have a perfect plan for your people. And as we enter into this study of your word in Exodus, we pray that you would continually give us insight and continually help us through your word to know you better, to see your ways more clearly, to understand how this ties very much into our own salvation, our own deliverance. 
And so we trust and pray that you will speak to us every time we read your word, but also we pray that every time we hear your word preached, that you would also bless us. So please send your Holy Spirit to help the preacher and help all of us who will hear as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God's providence surrounding Joseph and surrounding his people Israel and his providence concerning a famine landed God's people Israel in Egypt. Uh, They have their own spot at this point in Egypt. I'm not going to repeat much of what I said last week, and so I'm kind of truncating that part of the introduction, but uh, they're in Egypt. They have their own spot. They have food and they have peace. They're in Goshen. Jump in your Bibles back to Genesis 47. Just a brief word there about what that was like. You remember that Joseph was in good standing with Pharaoh. In fact, he was one of the second to Pharaoh great rulers of this land. But here's what happens when Joseph's family, Israel, comes down into Egypt. This is the first seven verses. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And so Pharaoh actually blesses the people of Israel and puts them in this fertile land, in some of the best land. Things are actually pretty good. Not perfect for Israel at this time, but pretty good. And yet things are about to take a dramatic turn. In fact, they take a very terrible turn for the people of Israel. Things become a major burden fairly quickly. That's because God never intended for them to get too comfortable in the land of Egypt. He gave them a promise, and God always keeps his promise. He told them that he was going to bring them in to the promised land, a land of their own. But at this point, we find Israel in Egypt. And some of them may have well gotten very comfortable with their life there. Things were good, but it seems to me that the godly among them could not have been too comfortable, people of conviction. Even though they weren't thoroughly intermingled with the people of Egypt, they were somewhat separate. They were still exposed to this strange land, strange pagan land to the Israelites. It wasn't unfamiliar, but but now they're a little more up close than they had been as a people before, and they've been, they've been exposed to them to a certain degree. Egypt has this ruler named, as his title, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is seen as an earthly representation, a manifestation of the sun god, and so they have this earthly king who thinks he's a god, and the people serve him as a god. Their worship system is... is perverse in that there are thousands 
thousands of items for worship. System rife with little idols representing gods of just about everything in creation. My favorite, and I'm sure I've mentioned it before, is the dung beetle or the scarab. This little bug that pushes dung along and makes little balls out of it. That they see as one of their greatest gods somehow involved in creation. So their worship system would have been a great offense. The women, the women dressed risque. The men wore makeup. Some of the people certainly adjusted and dealt with it and lived among the people. Some were definitely vexed by it. But whatever the case is, they weren't going to remain at peace in this place because God was about to stir things up. Stir things up for his purposes and ultimately for the good of the people. Therefore, we have this book called Exodus. Exodus, the title that we simply get from the Greek Old Testament, the word simply means exit. The very title kind of gives it away. They will exit this situation. It's a spoiler, the title itself. I hate to admit this, especially in front of my brothers, but I've seen many Hallmark movies. And on the cover, it inevitably shows the couple that will end up being the couple at the end. It is a spoiler right on the cover. Here we have it in the title, Exodus. In the end, God's people will be with God, even through all the things that they have to deal with. Here's how we enter Exodus. Flip back one page. This is what we read last week, but I want you to pay attention to how this flows. Verse 22 is where we were last week. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from there. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put into a coffin. Flip right to Exodus chapter 1. Because the way this would read would be either and or now. It's a continuum. Now or and, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came up out of Egypt with Jacob. So that leads us into this situation where there needs to be an exodus. And we find out that the generation of Joseph has all died at this point. Stephen elaborates on that in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. He kind of tells the story. That's another place where the significance of Exodus is laid out for us to read. But here there's this death of that generation, that generation that came in. If you think about, if you think about Jacob's family, if you think about Israel, they were amazingly, disturbingly dysfunctional. And here of all places, at least for the time being, they're pulled together in Egypt. Pulled together in Egypt. God is going to keep and protect his people. He keeps his promises. 
He's promised way back before in Abraham that he would preserve his people and that his people would multiply. And here they multiply indeed. In Egypt, again, of all places, there's what I call a multiplication problem, exponential growth. We read when they came in, they had about 70 people. There's plus, right? So some of those numbers would be worked with. But we know for sure that there were at least 70 and then plus Joseph's people. By the Exodus, there's 600,000 men, plus women and children, plus other people who were brought into the people of Israel. And so they grow exponentially. Matthew Henry jumps right to Christ in this growth of the people after the death of Joseph. He says, after the death of Christ, our Joseph, his gospel, Israel, began most remarkably to increase. And his death had an influence upon it. It was like the sowing of a corn of wheat, which if it die, brings forth much fruit. So he's making a parallel there between Joseph's death, the growth of Israel, Christ's death and resurrection, and the growth of the church. So that generation dies. There's a generation living in Egypt for a decent amount of time, uh, enjoying their situation. They're there for a number of years, but another key figure from the past dies too, and that's the Pharaoh who loved Joseph. Now there's another Pharaoh, and that's where the problem begins. It's amazing how quickly things can change. Now they find themselves under an oppressive ruler. And before our very eyes, we see this Pharaoh become the earthly representative of the kingdom of darkness. What unfolds in front of us from here on out is this epic conflict on earth that reflects the great conflict, the cosmic conflict, if I can use that word, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And the parallels are these. You have Moses, who at many times will be the Christ figure in opposition to Pharaoh, the devil figure, the sin figure, the death figure. You have Israel representing the church, and you have Egypt representing all the worldliness and that things that set itself up against God. Put in those terms, you can guess who wins. Another spoiler alert. Moses, again, is a key figure, but we're not even to Moses yet. Well, now we still need to deal with Pharaoh and his fears. He's not mentioned by name, this Pharaoh. In fact, that kind of still remains a mystery. Many people have tried to solve exactly which Pharaoh this is. But when it comes to the story of redemption... God's story of salvation, the name and the individual of this Pharaoh really isn't that significant. It's great for historical studies, worthy historical study, but it doesn't really have bearing on the history of redemption of God's people. The thing about this Pharaoh is that he didn't know Joseph. He couldn't have known him personally, but, but the indication is that he didn't really know about him Actually, the indication is that he really didn't want to know about him. He didn't want to know the history of this person, Joseph. He's somewhat in denial. Granted, Joseph, Joseph died in 1800 B.C. 
around there. Moses was born in 1500, approximately 300 years, but, but this seems like an intentional ignorance of the person of Joseph. Because he didn't know Joseph, he didn't esteem Joseph's family, and then he becomes threatened by this, this ever-growing group that, that could provide a potential uprising, if not themselves, in alliance with other countries around Egypt. And so he felt threatened, even though at this point there's no real threat. There's no real threat. And yet, he's actually paranoid. And rightly so. Because God will deal with him. He comes up with a solution. This is what I call solution number one. We'll see some other solutions that he tries to come up with in order to stop the growth and the power of Israel. Tonight we'll just look at this one, and it's oppression. What do we do with these people? Let's act shrewdly towards them. Let's work cleverly to keep them in check. When all else fails, shackle people with taxes and forced hard labor. And so he does. And the burden becomes great. But here's the irony. It makes matters worse. Or, from a different perspective, it makes matters better. We find out in verse 12, in verse 12, that even though they're oppressed, but the, little more they, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. God cannot... God cannot be mocked. He said he would multiply his people. And so even in this terrible situation, and certainly part of the plan was to make their lives so miserably that they would say to themselves, we don't want to bring children into this world. Good reminder to us when we're concerned about our children regarding what's down the road for Christians, what's down the road in our country to remember that God is always faithful to his people. And he will be faithful to the children's children in the covenant. And he will bless them and keep them if they walk in the faith. And so it seems to be that it makes matters worse for Pharaoh, but better for God's people. And they keep multiplying. But tonight we leave God's people in a desperate condition. They're desperate for relief. They'll be pressed down harder and harder and they have to be wondering daily who will deliver us and they keep looking for a savior maybe not articulating it but in every jewish mind would be there is going to be a deliverer there is going to be a savior who's going to deliver us from this unbearable burden that will surely be the death of us Where will they look? Where will they look? Well, God is going to have them look to him. God is going to display his glory. Theoretically, God could have left them there, but in reality, he had something far better for them. The whole book of Exodus is a real-life allegory of Bondage to sin and then deliverance by the gracious hand of God. And the Israelites will experience that in real time on earth 
a real physical deliverance, but this speaks to us of so much more. And what the people of Israel are ultimately looking for, even though they have it in such shadowy ways, is for a Savior, the Messiah. And so as we travel along with the Israelites, we'll we'll see the hand of God at work, the mighty hand of God at work in a number of ways. We'll get to know God better. We'll see types and signs and sacrifices and prophecies as we we walk in their sandals, we'll be looking for, through all those things, the ultimate deliverer. The spoiler for us is we know his name. We know he's Jesus. But we'll be constantly pushed in that direction, looking, looking, looking for the Messiah. And we will see astounding New Testament connections and direct connections to Jesus himself. Just to start your appetite, hopefully to make you hunger for more of what's to come in Exodus, here's what Jude says. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. People, that's not me stretching for a connection. That's the inspired word of God penned by Jude. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Now turn, if you will, and I want you to turn there because I want you to see this. To Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We're just going to stop there. The word in the Greek there is the same word of the title of the book that we're in, Exodus. There's significance here. Remember who's there? Moses is there. Elijah, who made his own exodus in a spectacular way, is there. But Jesus, appearing in glory, speaks of his exodus. Some translations say his his death or his demise or whatever they translated. The word is exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So we see that Jesus' own life represents that, that coming out of sin. His required a death, but then his exodus from this world into heaven, where he awaits his people. Again, not my connection. God's word. Another spoiler alert. Jesus defeats the enemy. 
that we could never defeat. Jesus delivers his people with a far greater deliverance from death, from sin, and from the devil. And eventually he will usher his people into his presence. And as many songs like to say that we will stand at the Jordan one day and finally cross into Canaan land, into the promised land. So I trust God will open our eyes to see the glorious deliverance, not only of his ancient people Israel, but of his church that he calls his own, that he will not allow to remain under slavery and in burden of sin and under the reign of death or in the grip of the devil. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we once again thank you for your word, and we know that your word is good news throughout, because we see that you have a perfect design of deliverance for helpless, sometimes hopeless, weak people in bondage, in slavery, your plan to deliver. And we know that you have accomplished that through the Messiah through the Christ, through Jesus our Lord. And each one of us in Christ tonight can say truly, you have taken us out of our bondage, our sorrow, and our night. And you've set us free. And you've given us joy. And we've entered into the light of Christ. And we rejoice in that tonight. And we give you thanks and praise. You are our great God, so gracious to sinners like us. And we praise you. And we come to you in the name of the one who was dead, but who has gone before us into glory, the one who we long to see, Jesus Christ, the Savior. Amen.